Good morning, brothers and sisters. I hope you have all had a successful few days of Lent so far. Obviously, you get a little reprieve. It's Sunday, so your particular fast can be set aside for this day. Remember, on solemnities and Sundays, which are all holy days of obligation, or at least Sundays are, you're always free from continuing your particular fasts. We call this season every year the joyful season of Lent, and it doesn't seem, at least on the outside, like it's a proper name for this season. We have to give up things that we like and we want. You know, we have to do extra prayers and penance. What makes it so joyful? Of course, we understand that the reason that we call it a joyful season is not because it's not sacrificial season, it certainly is, but because of what this sacrifice does for us, how it helps us turn from sin and turn more to the Lord. And because of that, we rejoice. So it's the fruits of Lent that we rejoice in, not so much the season itself. Now in our gospel today, Jesus has gone into the desert for one specific reason. It was the Holy Spirit that led him, and he was led by the Holy Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. The fathers of the church tell us that the reason Jesus did this was not only to show us all that we're going to have to fast just like he did, but that he himself was subject to temptation, but without sin. He knows that we are constantly tempted and tested throughout our lives, and so he wanted to show us that he has endured temptation as well and to teach us how to overcome temptation, to conquer it. But there's another important theological element that we have to recognize. You see, Jesus is overturning the sin of Adam and Eve. That's the whole purpose for his coming into the world and his suffering and death and resurrection. He's undoing what the first sin did. And so it's not surprising if you listen carefully to the gospel that Satan is tempting Jesus in pretty much the exact same way that he tempted Adam and Eve. The fathers of the church teach us that when Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan in the garden with the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Genesis tells us that there were three things that tempted them. When she took the fruit, she saw that it was good for food, it was pleasing to the eyes, and it was desirable for making one wise. The fathers call these three things lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. They say that all sins, all the categories of sins, fall into these three. So it was good for food. That's the lust of the flesh. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with food. Obviously, you should eat food that's good for you. But when you cannot control your physical appetites, that is a sin of lust. Whether those appetites are hunger for food, desire for sleep, or sex, all of these physical appetites, undisciplined, unmastered, uncontrolled, are lusts of the flesh. And that's the first way that Satan always tempts us as human beings because of these physical desires that we have, the lusts of the flesh. So in Jesus' first temptation, 
What does the devil say to him? Now, he's been fasting, hasn't eaten a single thing for 40 days. Now, that would kill the rest of us, but he's the son of God. He's without sin, so he forces himself to continue to live, even though he's clearly very hungry, as the gospel tells us. He still needed food, even though he wasn't going to die if he didn't eat. So the devil waits until he's really hungry to come to him. The devil's smart. He knows that when he tempts us, he's not going to tempt us when everything's going well. He's going to tempt us when we're weakest. So he comes to Jesus, and he says to him, If you are the Son of God, it's a very interesting intro. Jesus knows he is the Son of God. So here is the devil trying to put a doubt into Jesus' mind, a question. Prove to me that you're the Son of God. It's the same thing he did with Adam and Eve. Did God really tell you not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, yes, he did. It's a simple answer. So here is Satan, same tactics as if thousands and thousands of years have passed since Adam and Eve. He's pulling all the same tricks. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, obviously, Jesus is the Son of God, and he has the power to change a stone into bread. It's no big deal for him. So what's the temptation? What would be wrong? Well, I mean, if our Lord had done it, there'd be nothing wrong with it. The point is, why should he use his divine power to transform something that he had made into a rock? Jesus made the rock. He obviously doesn't want it to be bread, or he would have made it bread. Rocks aren't meant to be eaten. He designed the universe to function in a certain way, and if you want bread, you have to grow wheat and grind it down and mix it with water and bake it. That's the God-given way of making bread. Just because he can miraculously change one thing into the other doesn't mean he wants to or it's appropriate. But here is Satan trying to tempt him with the lust of his flesh. He was very, very hungry. He clearly needed food. But he was trying to get Jesus to use his power for such a weak and earthly need. But our Lord responds, It is written, One does not live on bread alone. One does not live on bread alone. And this passage that Jesus is quoting from the Holy Scriptures if you know the rest of it, is one does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. It is the word of God, Jesus Christ himself, who is the bread of life. Not physical bread. But Satan doesn't stop there, right? With Adam and Eve, the lust of the flesh came first. But what was the second temptation? So it was good for food, but it was also pleasing to the eyes. It was a very pretty fruit. Now, we are designed by God to recognize beauty and goodness in things and want to possess those things that are beautiful and good. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we cannot control that desire to possess, to own the good and the beautiful, that's called the lust of the eyes. So all of those sins that correspond with those kind of lusts, greed, envy, well, those are the big ones. But, you know, there's a lot of sins that manifest in that way. It could be vanity. So in these ways, these are the lust of the eyes. So how does Satan tempt Jesus with the lust of the eyes? This is a desire for possessions, for wealth, for the good things of the earth. 
he takes him up and in a single instant, he shows him all of the kingdoms of the world. And then he says to him, I shall give to you all this power and glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I may give it to whomever I wish. All this will be yours if you worship me. That's the caveat. If you worship me. So all of the good things of the earth will be in your hands. All power, all glory, all wealth, if you but worship me. There's a priest I know, I knew him in a minor seminary, and when he was a young man, I think I've shared this before, when he was a young man in high school, he was Catholic, raised Catholic, he was frustrated with his lot in life, and so he made a pact with the devil, literally, a formal pact, giving his soul to the devil, if the devil would give him popularity in school, that all girls would be attracted to him, that he would have lots of money, that he would get perfect grades. That's what he wanted. So he makes this formal pact with the devil, just on his own. Suddenly, everything he wanted starts coming true. All the girls in school started liking him. He became very popular. He had like an aunt who died and left him a lot of money. He started getting straight A's. Like everything he wanted came true. So he got exactly what he wanted. And why was that? Because Satan does have power over the kingdoms of the earth. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were originally given dominion by God. They surrendered that dominion to Satan. And since then, Satan rules this earth. Christ rules the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. He will rule this world when he comes again in glory, but he doesn't rule it now. This is why I never really trust people who are too powerful or too wealthy. I always wonder how, who are they serving? But this young man got everything he wanted. But of course the devil is a liar from the beginning and always turns his back on those he pretends to serve and care for. Eventually, of course, by God's mercy, this young man repented of what he had done, went to an exorcist and was delivered. He was obviously possessed. The moment he had done that, he had become possessed. And he's now a priest. Look what God has done in his life. But it was from this lust of the eyes that tempted him so much. So how does Jesus respond to this temptation? He responds in the same way as the first. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. The last temptation, the pride of life. This is what Genesis means when it says that in this fruit of the knowledge of the tree of, no, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I had it all right the first time. It was desirable for making one wise. That's what Adam and Eve saw in the fruit, desirable for making one wise. Now, wisdom isn't a bad thing. God wants us to have wisdom. But when that desire leads to pride, arrogance and judgment, assumption that you know more than you truly do and a lack of humility, then that's sinful, that's dangerous. That's the pride of life. 
So Satan's last temptation is exactly the same. He turns to him and he takes him to Jerusalem, up to the height of the temple, the parapet, and he tells him, throw yourself off, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and with their hands they will support you, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So far, the Lord Jesus has responded to Satan with scriptural quotes. And so the devil, realizing he's not working, is going to try to quote the scripture back to Jesus. So if I can't tempt him other ways, I'll use the word of God against him. So he quotes some two scripture passages about how God said he will send his angels to protect and guard you. So throw yourself off and then let's see if God is really honest. If God tells the truth, will he send his angels to protect you? And our Lord responds, as he does always, to temptation. It is also written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You see, it would have been very prideful and arrogant of our Lord to test God in this way. If God has said he will protect you, then he will protect you. That alone should be enough for you to believe him. When we go out of our way to test the Lord, it's because we doubt him, because in a sense, we're judging him. We're saying, okay, yeah, I really don't know if you're honest about what you promised to me. What kind of arrogance and pride would that be in the heart of somebody who would test the Lord? And so Jesus quotes the perfect passage in response. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Believe in his word. Be humble. Now, in all of these instances, Jesus uses the scriptures to defend himself against these temptations. And he does this to teach us all a very important lesson. That the word of God is our defense. It is our defense. When we are being tempted in any way by Satan, the better we know the holy scriptures, the better we defend ourselves against temptation, and the less we fall into sin. Now, I want to give you an interesting, this is a true story. When I was a religious brother during my postulancy, there was one morning, I think it was a Saturday morning, I was just sitting in the chapel doing a holy hour. Said some prayers from my little prayer book and already prayed a rosary. So I was just sitting there with the Lord. And I heard a voice say to me, and I mean external voice, it wasn't just in my head. You can have that if you want it. For some reason, I knew immediately what it was referring to. So my younger brother, when we were homeschooled, wrote a report on Rasputin. I don't know how many of you know who Rasputin is. Look him up, fascinating character. He was an Orthodox Catholic priest. Before he went to the dark side, literally, he became, in essence, a Satanist and became possessed by many demons and gained great power and wisdom because of it. And then he pretty much took over Russia. So read the story. It's, it's fascinating. So he had done this book report on Rasputin. And for some reason, I'm sitting there in prayer, this is many years later, and Rasputin comes to my mind. And then I hear this voice say to me, you can have that if you want it. It's a very sweet and gentle voice. And I knew exactly who it was. Satan was offering me the same power and influence that Rasputin had, that he gave to Rasputin however many hundreds of years ago. Now, thanks be to God, you know, I was in a good spiritual state and I wasn't as tempted by that. 
I actually became fairly scared because I was like, I've never heard the voice of Satan before. This is terrifying. And so what did I do? I put my head down, I closed my eyes, and I started praying Hail Marys. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Blessed are thou among women, blessed is the fruit. I just kept praying Hail Marys over and over and over again until it got quiet. <laughs> I was terrified. But that was the right response, right? It responded with the word of God, with holy prayer. It was the best way to defend yourself in moments of temptation. I just thank God I had learned that. Now, oftentimes, when people are striving to learn the scriptures and use it to protect themselves from the temptations of the devil in the world, it doesn't seem successful every time. They try to do it, but then they fall, still fall into temptation and sin. And so you're tempted to believe in those instances that it doesn't work because it didn't work for me. This would be a bad judgment on your part. You see, the Bible calls itself, it calls the Word of God a two-edged sword. A two-edged sword that is so sharp, it can pierce between marrow and bone. So it's not just a one-edged sword that can cut one way. This can cut two ways. And it's so sharp, it can cut right between marrow and bone. It's like a fine razor. That is the Word of God. So if you're going into spiritual battle with Satan, you want the best weapon that you can have to combat his temptations. Now our Lord has already told you, I've given you the best weapon. You've got the word of God. But just because you have this amazing sword and you can easily cut down the devil with it, doesn't mean you're very good at wielding it. Not yet. Imagine a page who is just learning to use a wooden sword. He's obviously not ready to go into battle to become a full knight. Most of us in our spiritual lives are like that young page. We have been given this perfect weapon, but we don't know how to use it. We kind of fumble around and just kind of swing randomly in fear. (laughs) So how do you improve your skills? Obviously, trial and error, repetition. It's the mother of all learning. You just keep trying. You keep doing the same thing, using the word of God. And over time, what you'll recognize is you get better and better at defending yourself against temptation. Now, the reason the gospel tells us that Jesus was led into the desert by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil is because these temptations that we all have in our lives are tests that God himself wants us to endure. Because it's only when you're tested that you can improve and grow. Tests prove where you need to grow. Whenever somebody is ready for a test, there's no anxious fear or concern, right? They're like, yeah, give me a test, I'm ready for it. But most of us in school or at home, when we're getting quizzed, We're like, no, no, please, no test today. That just proves we haven't been studying. We haven't been working on this or that skill. We don't like tests because we're not ready for them most of the time, but that's precisely why they're so good. And God knows this about us. He made us, which is why he allows the devil and his demons to tempt us. This is the only way we can grow in the spiritual life. 
We know the tool, the weapon we're supposed to be using. We have to continue to practice each time we are tested. And sometimes we're going to fail the test in sin. Of course, Jesus knew you would do that. He knew I would do that. And so he gave us a sacrament of reconciliation so we can be healed every time. And then we can come before Jesus and receive his body and blood in the Eucharist and be strengthened with that heavenly food. And then we can go out and be tested again. In each day, day after day, by his grace, we begin to improve slowly. And our skill at wielding the holy and two-edged word of God improves over time. I'm sure that the devil has tried to tempt me since that time many years ago, but I've hardly noticed it, at least in those ways, because I've gotten so used to saying, yeah, 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 whatever. <laughs> Just think of the word of God and dismiss it. There's always new ways to tempt me, trust me. You know, he doesn't give up. But you'll find as you grow that old temptations become easy to overcome. But it's perseverance in this area that's so important. Because we don't believe the word of God, because we don't trust in God's holy word, we fail to continue to strive because of our failures. Failure isn't the problem here. God really doesn't care how many times you fall into sin. He doesn't. Did you know Satan doesn't even care how many times you fall into sin? This is one area where God and Satan are very similar. See, the reason why God doesn't care how many times you fall into sin is because he's given you the sacrament of reconciliation, and all you have to do is repent. You see, God cares whether you repent. That's what he cares about most of all, because if you repent, then there's hope. Then you can continue to grow and improve. See, Satan doesn't care how many times you fall into sin. He just doesn't want you to repent. Because if you don't repent, he's got you. He wins. There's no improvement. There's no hope for you. This holy season is all about repentance. And I say this all the time because it's so true. You may be very good at sinning. You may be very good at sinning. That's not a problem for God. Just become good at repenting. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.